The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, brought to you by the founders of Saunders Studio. Artificiality is a podcast dedicated to understanding the emerging community that is humans and machines. We take the latest in the human side, decision science, psychology, and design, and put it together with advances in artificial intelligence and big data so that you can understand how to work better with machines and your fellow humans. We founded Saunders Studio to help people be more human in the age of AI. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and stay curious. We interview some of the top minds working at the intersection of humans and machines and make sure we have a few laughs along the way. If you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe and leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. We all want decision-making to be easier. We want simple tools and frameworks that provide a process for no-regrets decisions, but it just isn't that easy. Despite how much we understand about the science of decision-making, the act of making decisions is frequently quite difficult. And the quantity of data we can now access to support decision-making doesn't make decisions easier, it actually makes them more complex. So what to do? In his book, Difficult Decisions, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy, Eric Pleiner argues that the best way to approach complex, subjective decisions is to first understand your own subjectivity, morals, and ethics. In this episode, we talk with Eric about his book, how he advises leaders to make decisions, the importance of aligning intent with impact in the world, and how to think about the role of data in decision-making. In addition to being an author, Eric is CEO of YSC Consulting, where he works with leaders and organizations on leadership development, organizational culture, and strategic diversity and inclusion initiatives. As frequent listeners know, we spend a lot of time working with people on how to make better decisions, and it was a true pleasure to talk with Eric about how he approaches this topic and how he helps leaders tackle difficult decisions. Eric, thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Let's start off with just a, 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 a key question, which is, um, what was the inspiration for the book? I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with leaders in a lot of different settings and contexts for, for more than 25 years now. Everything from artists to young people to CEOs to government officials and beyond. And there are lots and lots of frameworks for thinking and talking about leadership and how leaders make decisions. But one of the things that I noticed was missing and that often perplexed a lot of and still perplexes a lot of the leaders that I encounter is how do I make decisions when there is a moral or ethical component to them? There's no framework against which to evaluate people based on their morality or, or their acceptance of collective ethics, at least not an explicit one. And I thought it would be useful to create a tool that could give people an opportunity to think through 
where, where does my morality come from? How do I understand the ethical context that I'm operating in? And what do my stakeholders expect of me? Once I had that clear in my mind, I felt like there was an opportunity to, to offer something to leaders who wanted to think about complex human problems in a different way. And that's where the book came from. Yeah, I found that um, a really interesting and, and sort of drew me in right at the very start of the yeah. book is this idea that um, not everything can be codified and that so much is is left up to people's individual judgment. And what do you, I mean, the, the title of the book was sort of really grabbed me as well, The Difficult Decision. What do you think makes decisions particularly difficult and, and how would you define like a, a really hard decision? I think the most difficult decisions are the ones that are complex because they involve the messiness of humans. They're big in scope, but there are plenty of decisions that are big in scope that aren't necessarily difficult. Oftentimes having some form of reasonably objective data can point us in a direction that can help us to come to a conclusion quickly and easily. But the complex ones, the most difficult ones, are the ones that affect real people's real lives that are not always rational. They have emotional components to them and where there is no way to make everyone happy by making the decision. In fact, it's likely that whatever choice the leader makes is going to make a number of people and potentially a very large number of people very unhappy. No leader wants to make people unhappy. It doesn't mean it comes, uh, comes easy to them to make tough decisions, but they certainly don't get into their roles based on the idea that they're going to make people miserable or disappointed. And so the difficult decisions are the ones that are human, complex, that have real-world implications for real people's real lives, and that inevitably are going to satisfy some people and potentially disenfranchise others. Of all the examples that you have in the book, are there any that you'd pull out as like your sort of gold star example of a difficult decision? I mean, I think the the size and scope of the decision doesn't necessarily matter. There are examples in the book sure. of uh, of the CEO of Ralph Lauren having to make a determination about whether to furlough thousands of employees at the beginning of the COVID period, or the executive director of the National Gallery of Art determining whether the timing was right to be able to display a controversial, controversial exhibition. Um, but I think difficult decisions can be as small as, I've just tested positive for COVID, should I get on this airplane or not? It's human, it's complex, there are different ways of looking at it, it tests our morality, our ethical context, and what others expect of us. And there's no easy answer. Some people will be happy with one choice and angry at another and vice versa. And so while the book goes through big decisions uh, made by people in big leadership roles, the implications are for every one of us every day as we think about how do we navigate our own beliefs about right and wrong and a world that's changing really, really fast where what's expected of us one hour could look very different from what's expected of us a few hours later. Well, that's a real tough one. And um, it's interesting when a lot of the work that we do on decisions with data in particular um, kind of rests on, on, on a, um, a premise that decisions are getting harder and more difficult because the world is getting more complex and moving faster. And that's actually kind of hard to like demonstrably prove. It's something that people intuitively say, yeah, for sure. But, and there are some data points that definitely support that view. 
Um, but it's mostly that it, it fits our intuition of things getting more complex and more difficult to, to sort of navigate. And one of the things that occurred to me in reading through your book was that part of that complexity and part of that difficulty is because people are perhaps spending more time um, reasoning more precisely about their own morality, but also reasoning more precisely about um, ethics, because ethics has been more sort of generally discussed. And um, with the recent, you know, there's been an explosion in in, um, good uh, popular science and business and decision-making books, like Kahneman's Noise, for example, that we, you know, variable thinkers and we bring our own judgment and 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 our uh, and that judgment is is variable in itself. And going back to the thing you just said, which was around how it can be different the next moment, it can be different the next day. That isn't always because something factually has changed. It's the way that it that it's been perceived or something got picked up on social media so there's a greater f- uh, emphasis on something or just people's reaction is so much more able to be visibly seen. And so when it comes to sort of assessing your own decisions um, and putting your decisions out into the world in a way that does f- have a reaction, um, how much have you seen people shift to really trying to practice these and trying to think about them and taking different methodologies on board in terms of um, thinking through different counterfactuals or um, role-playing or crisis management being much more sort of upfront? and Or are people sort of um, – how much has that shifted as people have wanted to sort of test their ideas before – um, or test their decisions before sort of just seeing what happens on Twitter. Yeah. I love that question because I think what you've what you've proposed, Helen, is the notion that um, we have we have way more tools and way better science than we've ever had about decision making. That that's something we can quantify and demonstrate uh, with with some certainty. And yet, does it fundamentally change the way that people make decisions? when they are in the heat of a difficult moment. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think a lot of leaders, and my my specialism is in leadership in particular, but I think this affects all of us in our lives, um, ultimately revert to aspects of our own intuition and things that we can't necessarily define in the moment when we are forced to make a complex decision. And so regardless of how much of the science we've read, how much we've internalized and how much we apply it in practice, I think is probably still a very small fraction of what's actually available to us. And so part of my proposition is that what we have to start with is knowing ourselves really well. I am... I like the way that you framed this question about whether the world actually is more complex. I don't know if it is or not, but what I do know is that collectively we have more access to more information in an instant than we've ever had in the history of time. And so our ability to understand how complex the world is, is greater than it's been at any other point, because we know there's lots of information and lots of different perspectives that we didn't necessarily have access to 
at other times in history. For a long time, the notion of being a leader, being in a position of having to make complex human decisions was about mastery. It was, how do I become the best at my job, the best at my operating context, the person who is most skilled or most experienced at delivering something, and therefore I can then be the leader of the next group of people. But the challenge is that it's impossible to master all of the information and all of the contextual inputs that we have now. Um, because there's just so many of them that we have access to with a supercomputer in our pockets. That means to me that we have to think about the tools available to us for complex decision-making in a very different way. And my proposition is that the leader should start with her, him, or themselves, uh, with the idea being that if we know where we're coming from, we know what our biases are, we understand the way that we see things in that pressured moment, what we experience as intuition can actually be tied to the aggregation of lots of data collection throughout our lives, lots of experiences, and made in a sensible way. I mean, this goes to the heart of a lot of what we end up talking about mm. on a daily basis, which is we're sort of the sum of our own choices, right? We, we, the more that we move through life, the more that we develop our own, um, uh, we, we become the choices that we are, we're we have our own biases as a result of that. And sitting behind that is a whole bunch of data that we're not necessarily even conscious is data. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just stuff we pay attention to. And so you're saying let's start by paying attention to ourselves first. And then once we do that, we've got a solid grounding to understand our own biases and how other data and, and experiences will will be framed as we as we experience and what's your first sort of starting point for people to start doing that? I offer a couple of exercises for people to, to try it out in the book, but I think the easiest thing to start with is to spend some time reflecting on where we get our ideas about right and wrong, especially in organizational contexts. We talk a lot about values, what matters to us, what we stand for. But my view is that those are relatively easy for us to manipulate consciously or unconsciously in service of what we think makes us look or feel good. But when we talk about morals, we're talking about what we won't stand for, what we absolutely feel is, is something I cannot live with. That tells us a lot about our beliefs about right and wrong and where we individually draw the line in variable circumstances. And so I encourage people to think about what are the things that you think really are wrong. Where did you get those ideas from? And then to use an exercise that's been around for decades that came from McKinsey consultants, which is the five whys to ask yourself, well, why do I think that? And why do I think that? And to do it five times to get to the core of what is my underlying belief? And then to spend some time reflecting on where did that come from? Did it come from my parents, my community, something in my childhood, some aspect of a faith-based upbringing? Um, where did I hear these messages and how did I internalize them? And actually, now that I've tested myself on them, is that really my belief? Have I really identified what I think about right and wrong? Or have I actually uncovered something that I accept as second nature, but that maybe isn't aligned to what I believe now at this stage of my life? Start with some really basic things. What is the line for you? What will you not stand for? Why is that something you won't stand for? And where does it come from? 
the clearer you can get about that, the easier it is in the moment of having to make a difficult decision to be able to access your own morality as a source of making a decision that is more good, that causes more help than harm. When we um, help people through um, designing AI systems that that have to be, you know, that that have these these components to them. One of the exercises we have is very similar to that. It's a, you know, we call it a red zone. What what's the thing that this AI system could never do? Like we don't want it to do it, because that actually does set the boundary. And it's amazing if you skip that step, people have nowhere really to stand, because everything else becomes there's no there's no place to go back to. Um, and another place that we find that it's really important for people to, to, to be very conscious and deliberate to design is intention. So uh, we think about that from an AI perspective as what's the intention of this algorithm? What are we trying to really do? And, and then you can sort of break it down by how that performs over time or how it performs on different cohorts. But how do you find talking to leaders about about their intentions. Does five whys still work for that? Do they still have a sense of intention that when you really push on it, it starts to sort of become, reveal itself as some other intention? Or do they think about consequences ahead of intentions and then sort of get confused? How do you help people through that process? It's a great question. Um, I'll share a, a little anecdote with you. I started my career working in, in public service, primarily working uh, in, in government agencies, but also uh, in, in a number of nonprofit organizations. And a big part of why I did that was that I was really motivated by the idea of having impact in the world. And I didn't believe that that was something that I could have on the scale that I wanted to in the way that I wanted to in the private sector. Well, flash forward a number of years, and I recognized the, uh, the fallacy of that thinking um, and eventually began to work with leaders in the private sector. And to my surprise, and it seems incredibly naive recounting it now, they were human, just like the people in government and in nonprofit organizations. And in fact, what motivated them was really similar to what I saw from people in public service, and that is a desire to do something meaningful in the world. The way that they got to that desire um, maybe showed up in different ways, but collectively, humans are motivated by a desire to matter. And... Um, and so what I saw was that the more that people got in touch with, well, what signals to you that you matter, that they could then get to the heart of what was their true intent and what was their impact? Where do their intent and impact align? And where does the impact that they're having based on the decisions that they're making or the, the way that they're communicating them actually unintentionally undermine their intent? When you say this is the thing that matters to you, but you do X, how does that actually communicate to others that this isn't the thing that matters to you or that you don't really believe what you're saying? I've rarely encountered a leader who doesn't hold some form of integrity as core to how they see themselves. And so pointing out the conflict inherent in their intent versus their impact often gives them an opportunity to realign and to rethink, how do I bring my intent to life in a way that is authentic and genuine to me, but also that communicates to other people what really matters? 
intent versus impact is a big conundrum for a lot of us. And we are often not fully aware of the impact that we're having. I think about it even in the context of, of some of the work that, that you all have shared and, and, and some of your, your other guests in the past, certainly nobody goes into building an AI, uh, an AI system of any kind with the desire for bias to be present in it. Maybe there might be a few people uh, at the fringes, but in general, people want to build something that they believe can have reasonable objectivity and allow them to do much more with much less, much more quickly. Um, but that doesn't mean that's the impact. The impact, nonetheless, is that our human biases creep into the way that we build our ideas and our technologies in the world, and that the more that we can be aware of what our own biases are, the greater the likelihood that we can be attentive to and therefore address the elements of our, uh, of our ideas manifest in a way that does not reflect our intent. That's, uh, that's compelling, and it makes me believe that the greater our, uh, our use of technology, the better we are that using, tech, uh, using technology to make sense of complex uh, information and large data sets, the better we have to get at being human. It's not about replacing our humanity, but we have to improve the skill of our humanity alongside our improvement in the skill of our use and application of technology. Um, once we do that, the, the greater the likelihood that we can avail ourselves of the tools and technologies that we're developing more quickly than ever, but also that we can align our intent to our impact in the world. That's an ongoing challenge with um, anyone who's in, in the AI space, partly because of how people end up judging it, right? So um, there's been some very interesting work out of MIT in the last few years, MIT Press, I think, um, on people being judged on their intentions, whereas machines are judged on the consequences, yes. on the impact. And, and that dilemma, um, I think, it runs nicely into some of the, the ideas in your book around, um, well, ultimately it's humans who are accountable, yeah. And so part of what I thought was um, what's really interesting in your, in, in your writing and your thesis is what it really takes to be authentic is to be able to stand up and defend a decision against the, the, the people who are hurt by yes. it. And so to do that, to actually defend the consequences when you actually even intended for that to happen – takes uh, a certain degree of, of um, self-knowledge and the courage to be able to um, express it in a way that doesn't come off sounding inauthentic. They're almost like multiple different steps. And um, I, it's, I'm interested in how you think about how um, leaders can... Um, talk about the rationale and talk about the decision framing and talk about the data that went into it without losing their audience, without making it look like, well, the data said I should do this or the data said, you know, um, the, the machine said this. Because if, pe if what you say matters the most is people need to matter, if you're on the other side of a decision where it's really clear you don't matter, that 
is the flip side of purpose, you're suddenly left with total disenfranchisement. So how do you help people think through that flip side? Especially when a leader feels like the answer was in the data, not in themselves. The answer is never in the data. The answers are always within us. The job of the data is to help us get clear about choices, but the data does not make the choice for us. It doesn't make the decision. For now, humans still have to make the decisions. Now, we could argue, are, are there kinds of data, are there kinds of technologies that can make decisions? Sure. But when we're again, when we're talking about complex human decisions that affect real people's real lives, we as humans have to own the decisions that we make. And if we attempt to, to defer them in some way by suggesting, well, you know, I wanted to do it differently, but the data said X, inevitably the people on the receiving end will lose confidence in us and lose confidence in the belief that we actually ever cared about them. The data doesn't make the decision. It informs it, but we have to own the choices that we make. Which is where I just jumped to Facebook. They can run so many experiments and have no idea of the consequences until they happen, but that doesn't stop them doing it. And they, Facebook as a company constantly has mission statements and comments about their intentions to bring the world together, and yet it just doesn't actually seem to ring true. But, but as, as you intimate, Helen, the intent doesn't actually matter if the, if the impact uh, is something very different. And so this is why I say values and intent, they're not unimportant. They help to give us a direction, but ultimately they're aspirational and they are are subject to social desirability. But if we sat down and said, morally, we believe that this impact is wrong, that we will not under our watch allow these things to happen, then certainly every decision that is made on a machine scale would have to be reviewed for the likelihood of it crossing that line and built in to the capability of that machine-oriented decision-making would be very clear boundaries about what is not going to happen under our watch, under our funding, under our leadership. Absent that, it is all just empty. It's, yeah, it's great to say what your intent is, but that is not what you're doing in the world. But if we're really clear about this is the line that I would draw, and we are explicit about that, then our ability to avoid creating the conditions for machines to make decisions that have really large negative human impact is very, very different. And I think the problem is a lot of the technologies that we use in our day-to-day have been built without ever having a conversation in a meaningful way about what genuinely constitutes harm, what are right and wrong, and how and where do we draw the line. Absent that, we know actually there is no line. There is no line. That there are other interests, other stakeholders uh, whose, whose desires take priority. And that's fine, but it's not explicit. And so right now we believe that even by using a social media platform, that we're relatively innocent, but the degree to which we are complicit in immoral, amoral, unethical activity 
is actually considerably greater, but we don't have the tools framework or context within which to talk about it. I think we're entering an era, this is slightly tangential, but as people think differently about their relationship to work, as the psychological contract with the workplace changes, where people will begin to make choices based on their understanding of what the company that they are considering working for stands for or doesn't stand for, what it won't stand for. Um, and I think we're going to continue to look to business um, as a place that has, to, that has to make up for gaps in other parts of our organized society. And therefore, each individual can do a better job of deciding what's right for them or not right for them based on their understanding of the morality and the ethical context of the organization that they may or may not join. Otherwise, we're, we're making decisions based on very limited data. And that data, we, as we know, can be, uh, can be overtaken by very simple things like the size of compensation. Maybe that compensation is ultimately the deciding point. But that's why knowing about ourselves, what will I stand for and what will I not stand for, is absolutely critical to determining how we make choices for ourselves and how in leadership roles we make choices that affect other people. It's interesting how you bring out the idea of thinking so carefully through values and intent when designing an AI system. But we, uh, over the years, have, have innovated on the concept of human-centered design to actually insert a couple steps in the process that focus on determining the possible outcomes that might come from an AI system and then directing it to those outcomes. And the important part there is that in so much of technology's development up until the last few years, really, when AI really became its own sort of part of the technology world, technology just did what we told it to do. And so you could think about it ahead of time saying, this is what I actually want to have happen, and so it's going to do this, and you know, it, it, it does it the same way for everyone. Now, though, these systems are out responding to customer feedback, mm -hmm. responding to employee feedback, employee, responding to social media cues, responding to whatever data happens to come in. And we've given it a goal, but if we haven't thought through all the ways that it might do something else, we don't know whether it's actually still following our intent because although we can have these conversations, you know, among the three of us here talking about intent and values, it's pretty hard to really describe your intent and value so well that you've created a boundary around it, that you can then let loose some sort of AI to go bounce against the edges, right? You know, we're not generally going through and asking those five whys every time to really get to the root of something so that we know we've defined the box, um, and so it's an interesting, you know, dance and balance. I, I did want to ask another sort of hypothetical question, um, which is um, there's a series of companies now that have, have are in the news now uh, because their employees are dissatisfied and they're unionizing. Yes. Um, some of those companies have had challenges with employee relationships for longer periods of time. I'd say Amazon's one of those. Um, I would say there's other companies, though, that I think have really gotten quite surprised, like Starbucks and Apple both, are companies that we work with, and they pride themselves on their employee relationships. They pride themselves on those frontline workers in a way that I think they've kind of gotten surprised. And I wonder how you think about talking to those leaders when 
they believe that they are making decisions that follow through on the values and intent that their employees are really important to them. And then it turns out that the feedback from those other humans that have affected, been affected by those decisions is completely opposite to what they thought. Yeah. And they're kind of blindsided. Like, how do you help someone through that process that they feel like they've been making the right decisions that align with their values and intent? But it turns out that the feedback from the people around them is like, yeah, nah, yeah, you're not doing a good job of this. And that's a, that's a great question. And I've probably got two conflicting answers for you. Um, the first is that uh, that the that any organization needs to be clear about who its stakeholders are. Who does it serve? So, for the leader or group of leaders that are suddenly confronted by employees saying, "Actually, um, this isn't working well for us." Interestingly, in the examples that you give, a lot of those leaders would say, "But we are employee centered." But from the beginning, I wonder if the employees would have agreed with that definition. Um, and so this is one of the things that, uh, that I've been challenged about, about, about difficult decisions. The book is uh, this notion of how are you talking about ethical context with CEOs who can make as much as 500 times or more the compensation of their frontline employees? Um, isn't inherently their existence already unethical in some way, or at least the, their existence as it is presently constructed. And I think this is why it's so important to be really clear about what we mean and prepared to align our behaviors to what we say our intent is. If what the intent of a leader is, is absolutely to care about their employees, and I believe that most leaders genuinely care about their employees, um, they also have to be explicit about the fact that they have a responsibility and obligation to their shareholders, to other stakeholders. And I suspect, I think we're going to see over the next few months and years, that the activities of the business roundtable and some of the other forums within which companies have and, and their leaders have talked explicitly about stakeholder capitalism will be challenged in a new way. Because the question is, is stakeholder capitalism still real during the hard times? It's very easy to care about all of our stakeholder groups when our shareholders' needs are met. But if our shareholders' needs are not met in the way that they expect them to be, do we actually lose the focus on some of the other stakeholder groups that we've said are just as important to us? I think we're going to see some, some, some revolt on that front. Um, and I think that's some of what you described, Dave, is that unionization is uh, a way in which many organizations are experiencing people that they've said are key stakeholders for them, not feeling like they are key stakeholders in a way that matters to them. Um, adults, all people, but especially adults, like to have things done with them rather than done to them. And with that said, it's impossible for anyone who does not sit in the chair of the CEO or of a senior leader to truly understand the full array of stakeholders that that individual has to balance. They're complex and lonely jobs. And, never, and, and they are not, as, as we talked about before, just about making people happy because it's impossible with the trade-offs that most leaders have to make to make everyone happy all the time. 
But the degree to which we are clear about our morality, what we think is right and wrong, and clear about our understanding of our ethical context, what is helpful and what is harmful, and that we proactively and consistently communicate that to people, people can then make a choice about whether they feel that it's a working environment that's right for them. And if not, certainly um, unionization is one of the ways that people respond. It's one of the ways. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways. And I think we're just at the very beginning of that real challenge of, again, the psychological contract, but also the integrity of leaders who have stated that, um, that their intent is to care about all of, the, all of our stakeholders um, in, in moments when that may not show up in the way that we hoped. Intent matters. Impact matters more. I think you're definitely drawing in on a, 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 a very complex topic for the next couple of years as we uh, recover from, uh, hopefully recover from, uh, a market downturn and hopefully wind our way through whatever uh, recession, inflation, whatever this turns out to be. But you're definitely right. It's, it creates a, a quite a strain and it will definitely make it harder for people to follow through on the conflicting values uh, or values that conflict with, with, with financial performance. Anything where there's that tension, it's going to make it a lot harder. It's a lot easier when everything was going up and to the right. You know, like, it's gravy. You know, they, everybody gets a raise and we take care of all of the different groups that we care about. But in this kind of a dif- difficult environment, it'll make it much, much more challenging. And the expectations, therefore, of leaders and of organizations will be different from different stakeholder groups. And so, again, when one stakeholder group or another feels that they're not getting their needs met, they're going to look for a way to either get their needs met differently or to go somewhere that they feel that they are being met. And that, um, I think, again, we're just at the beginning of a real change in the collective engagement with what it means to work. Yeah, and it makes me wonder about um, morality as a private thing. If you're a leader, you shouldn't expect your morality to stay private It's suddenly... A, a, a public good and of public interest, yes. um, and it. And I, I'm struggling to understand how, in the current context, we don't end up with corporate polarization the same way we have with political polarization. Um, we had a, an interesting little case study here last week, in our little close-knit mountain town, um, where one of the favourite coffee shops um, is someone put on a social media platform that they were uh, sponsoring uh, a pro-life provider. And social media exploded (laughs) with all sorts of people on either side, but both angry. And what had actually happened was they give away coffee that's about to expire to various non-profits all the time. And this one particular non-profit had got something and had put their logo on their website. Mm -hmm. And so for a good week, the town's turns upside down with people, I'm never going to go there again. And other people saying, I'm going to go and have all my coffee (laughs) there. Yeah. And... (laughs) And it, 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 was, it was troubling to see how quickly the lines were drawn within 
hours on social media. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what it's been like for them to recover their normal customership, but I don't even know what it would be like to be a barista there and have a conversation with your regular customers because now all of a sudden this very hot polarized subject has become, which is something that is very, you know, either side sees a very strong moral argument depending on what side you're yeah. on. Mm -hmm. Each side feels the strong moral argument. Yes. But how do you build a business when suddenly 50% of your um, market is gone yeah. because you've, you've put a moral stake in the ground? And this, was a, you know, this couldn't have been a hotter topic, right? You're really talking about the morality of the morality. Yes. <laughs> but it, it, and they, they could be an interesting case study to see how they, their workers felt about it, their owners felt about it but how the community felt about it, everyone sort of just feels bad. Yeah. Nobody feels good now. Yeah. And um, it's it's a real problem. I don't know how you can, as leaders, I mean, this sounds like it's the struggle of our times, is how much to get involved in some of these extremely difficult topics that are very polarizing. Yeah. But it sounds like you have yeah. to. I, I love this example, and I don't mean to in, in any way diminish the, the, the pain of the people involved, because it sounds like it has been really painful for the community. I love this example, though, because what it highlights is that leadership is always political. It's always political. We operate under the delusion that we can avoid being political at any time, and that hopefully people will judge us based only on maybe the quality or convenience of our product or service. But the fact is that this was a case where these leaders, as I'm understanding it, did not come out and make a statement one way or another, but somebody interpreted an action as being indicative of a statement. And then the reactions from everyone else were in response to that perceived statement. They didn't actually set out to make a political statement. They could have even been leaders who said, we don't get involved in politics. And, you know, there are plenty of companies that have tried that too, and it doesn't work for them either. Um, and, uh, and so what happens is you have a choice. You leave it to default or you do it with intent. You say, this is what we stand for and this is what we won't stand for. And then customers engage with you based on the degree to which they are aligned to, to what, you, what you want your business to represent. And by the way, what you can stand for is we create a welcoming and engaging space for all people and we encourage political dialogue and we don't, we know that people won't agree. Like you can, your, your morality doesn't have to be on one side or another. You have to be clear about what you stand for or what you don't stand for or somebody else will determine it for you. And so if you leave it to default, your strategy is hope. And hope is not a strategy. You're hoping that nothing goes wrong. But if you, with intent, say this is what we stand for and what we won't stand for, we won't stand for a community that demonizes each other. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. But absent that, articulating those views with intent you are operating with just the hope that nobody else does it for you. And you know what? For a long time, that's worked okay. 
But again, now people can access and transmit information faster than ever, and they can manipulate that information and that narrative to suit their own agendas. And so the companies that will be most successful are the ones that are most explicit about what they stand for, what they won't stand for, what they consider helpful and harmful, and then make sure that they are constantly aligning their behaviors to those statements. And when they make a mistake, and they will, because we're human and we make mistakes, that they acknowledge the mistake and realign their subsequent behaviors to what they actually stand for, or amend their statements to align to what they actually stand for. Otherwise, it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening. And it's painful. It's not causing the divide. It is bringing to light a divide that already exists. And the notion that we have uh, operated by treading very carefully around things that matter to us, rather than just coming out and saying, you know what, this is what matters. This is what matters. What do you, what do you think about the companies that have attempted to um, essentially prohibit political conversations at the office? Yeah. You know, where they say, we can't talk about this topic, you can't talk about this in Slack, there's none of that yeah. stuff. What do you think about that stance? Hasn't worked out great for them. So uh, I talk a little bit in the book about Basecamp and Coinbase as two examples of companies that have tried to do this. Um, the reality is that a lot of these issues are the things that are occupying people's minds and hearts and emotional energy right now. And so attempting to say this has nothing to do with our work suggests that our people and the fullness of their experience has nothing to do with our work. And so what companies can do is instead to say, these are the contexts or the forums within which this is appropriate. These are our expectations of how we treat each other, even when we have different points of view. Um, but attempting to just cut it out entirely, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, attempt, it's, it's putting a, a surface treatment on something that goes quite deep, quite deep. You can't, you can't put a Band-Aid on something that's well below the skin. And um, asking people who are dealing with the realities of complex life to just let go of that part of themselves means that they are letting go of part of themselves that they could also be using to improve their productivity, their performance, their engagement, their collaboration, their innovation, all things that matter to every company I've ever worked with. Mm. Yeah. Because it would, see, it would be especially difficult to be in a company where the, the stated morality is amoral. Yeah. Meaning to have like, this is, this is who we are as a business. We have no morals because we don't discuss yeah. them. Um, uh, it just, <laughs> I, I, I individually could never live yeah. in that. Um, you know, I, we live in a, we live in a, in an area of, of Oregon where we're quite on a political divide. Yeah. Um, yes. and you know, we quite comfortable getting having conversations with people of different, you know, different points of view and et cetera. But having a conversation where you're not allowed to express a point of view is just not something I could actually yeah. do for very long. Well, and there's another, there's <laughs> another notion embedded within that, Dave, which is the idea that any company could operate without morality embedded in its operations. Do you accept money for your services or product? That is a moral choice. You could give it away. You could give it away. Do I believe that it is right or wrong to expect something in return for something that I create? Um, that's a moral choice. It's not a bad moral choice. I don't have, this is the thing, I don't have any real judgment of others' morality. I think I have my own morality and I don't always agree with lots of people that I meet. 
but I think really interrogating, understanding where we're coming from and how everything that we do is imbued with morality can make us better at the human part of, of being leaders, of operating organizations, of being part of communities. Otherwise, we're just leaving it to default. And, um, and that's risky. Yeah, there's a, um, we talk about with uh, culture, we, a lot of work on you know, how to help people build um, data yeah. cultures. Not not about you know overruling people because you've got good data, and not about overruling data because you've got good yeah. people. Just trying to put the the, the 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 two things together, and I think we got it from um, Daniel Coyle actually. You know, weak cultures em- emerge, and strong cultures yeah. are designed. And I actually worked with a CEO um, back uh, quite a while ago who firmly believed that. And when he started a company um, with sort of the first four employees, he said, we're going to make sure that we design this culture right from the start. And the fascinating thing was he designed such a strong culture that not fitting that culture um, was basically, there was no way you could succeed. Yeah. And um, the f- what constituted a cultural fit was actually really very yes. narrow. It was basically little clones of him with different genders and different skin tones. But it was pretty much, you had to be pretty much like him and see the world pretty much like him. And um, that made for a, a very narrow set of thinking, a very narrow way of approaching decisions. And it makes me wonder whether there's, there's a flip side to this, which is having fewer difficult decisions because you've got a lot of the same worldview. And how, how will people, how will leaders be able to recruit for ongoing diversity of thought yeah. and diversity of worldview yeah. uh, with, if, if we become too attached to um, living one particular morality, which is the leader, it's kind of the new hierarchy. Yeah. Um, I think I think when we're talking about I, I I wouldn't conflate morality and worldview. I think morality is an input to worldview, and there are lots of other inputs to our worldviews. But I think being really clear and explicit about where we draw the line about right and wrong allows people to opt in or opt out themselves, um, so that they know what they're getting into. The notion of cultural fit. Um, I'm not sure that I. I would feel very excited or confident about a culture that was based around morality that was that was built off of right and wrong. Um, but instead about aspirationally, who do we want to be and how do we want to be in the world and how do we wish to direct our discretionary energy, for instance. Um, but I think, I think there's something about being explicit so that people can choose for themselves. This is something that I am aligned to. Um, and this is something that I'm not. And while it is possible for the leader to say, this is how it is, because that may be her, his, or their job, um, it is also possible for a leader to say, part of what I believe is right is that cultures are co-created by the people who are a part of them, and that they are constantly evolving, and that if I dictate for myself how it is to be, then I'm probably going to have a very limited culture. And if I, again, do things with people rather than doing things to people, then the, the, the likely richness and sustainability of my culture is very different than it is if it's something that I just say on my own. Um, it can be hard to be 
a leader uh, who inherits a culture that evolved by default rather than with intent. And sometimes leaders have to make choices to be bigger or more explicit about aspects of culture in service of making a shift. But you can't really do it alone. That's a dictatorship. That's mm. uh, that's uh, about propagating an ideology rather than a re- about building building a real culture. I think there are loads of ways to, to cultivate difference that are not just about different morality. I think um, having some... Well, I found that um, you had a, a framework in the book that I found very useful, which was, um, I think it was uh, view, voice, vote, yes. veto, right? Um, and and I found that found that really useful to think through how to be really conscious that when it comes to making difficult difficult decisions, that that structure always exists, yes. and to think consciously about who's in that structure. Yeah. And I made me wonder whether if you start to capture that, you start to um, be explicit about knowing when you've got the decision, you know, 10 people in a room or a Zoom or whatever, knowing exactly who's in that and those different roles, whether it's formal or informal, because we always know there's an informal structure. Um, But I found that really, really a helpful idea for tracking that over time, you know, thinking about that over time every time you make a difficult decision. Because you might find that different leaders have – have very different biases as to how much they accept views versus they the only way to stop them is with the veto yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um and and how people come to change their beliefs yeah. and because that is that's a whole other subject that'll take another hour but um you know if, if belief formation is 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 it's pretty hard to get people to change their views Completely. And in fact, one of the, one of the things I mentioned um, in, in the section on morality is that actually most people's morality is formed by about age 10. We're not actually trying to change each other's ideas of right and wrong. We may be trying to affect the way that we apply those ideas, but our notion of what's right and wrong is formed relatively, relatively early in life. I suspect that if we were to try to, as a third party, monitor a group of leaders um, but also ask those leaders to monitor themselves for the degree to which the leaders grant a view, a voice, a vote, or a veto. My suspicion is that most leaders would think that we grant more involvement to others than we actually do, and that most people on the receiving end would feel that the leader probably grants less um, than the leader feels her or himself. Um, and I say that as someone, you know, I, I, I am a, a CEO of a, of a small company myself, I like to think of myself as someone, as most leaders do, who involves people who genuinely cares about what they think. But whether my view of their role aligns to their view of their role is probably something that would be up for debate. And so getting, uh, getting folks to say, um, what do I have here? Do I, am I just having a point of view? Are you giving me voice in this decision? Are you giving me the opportunity to give real input that will affect the outcome? Are you giving me a vote where we're going to decide as a group? Is it a majority vote? Is it a two-thirds vote? How does the vote work? Or are you giving me a veto where if I can't live with what you're saying, actually I'm going to put the kibosh on the whole thing? Those are very, very different. And a lot of times leaders who hope to be inclusive unintentionally communicate to people that if I'm asking you what you think, I'm giving you a veto when in fact I'm just 
hearing your view or giving you a chance to exercise your voice. So you've created a framework and given it to your employees to allow them to question your leadership is, is what you've just outlined. I like to think so, but I will tell you there have been times where people have said to me, I don't think you're as open to, to feedback on X item as you think you are. And it's, it's a great moment. It's not always great in the moment, but it's a great moment of learning no. and of self-reflection to say, oh, wait a second, am I open here? Am I open? And if I'm not, then I have to say, you know what? You're right. I'm actually not open. I'm making the call on this one. But if I am, then I have to shift my behavior to say, you know what? Actually, I really feel open. And guess what? My impact is not matching my intent. And, uh, and therefore, I've got to change my behavior to communicate my intent in a different way. Um, leadership is, uh, is never-ending learning. I like that way of thinking about it, closing the gaps. It is never-ending <laughs> learning, yes. It definitely is. Yeah. So I, I look, uh, uh, perhaps a final question for you, which is, um, in addition to your book, obviously, if you um, had a leader who came to you and asked for some recommendations of other things to read to help them on this journey, or perhaps it's things to watch, or things to listen to, whatever it is. Do you have yeah. any sort of top picks? Okay, so I, I've got, again, I've got sort of two answers to this question. The first is uh, the first is that I actually encourage leaders to read as much fiction as they can and to try to read as much fiction as they can from authors who have core identities that are notably different from their own. And part of, I think, being a great leader is about being able to empathize with perspectives that are built of experiences that are wildly different from anything that we've seen ourselves. And so um, I, I'm often thinking about what are opportunities to engage with story, with narrative that is really compelling, um, that that prompts you to look at the world in a different way and to think about the implications of those narratives for our own leadership. So I've uh, recommended to a number of leaders over the past year or so, the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton, which is, I think, a, an absolutely brilliant novel that manages to capture very, very different perspectives on something that is branded an historical event um, in a really, a really great, a really great story. And one that I think, um, one that I think people will will find hard to put down. On the other side, in terms of thinking about nonfiction, um, you know, I'm a bit biased about this one, uh, but uh, Hubert Jolie's The Heart of Business is one that um, that I think has touched a lot of people's lives. I've been Hubert's executive coach for the last six years, and he does talk a bit about our work together in the book, so I'm admitting my bias right up front. But I think he gets to the notion of during his leadership of Best Buy how he stayed connected to the idea of purpose being at the core of what, uh, of what makes a company tick. And I think he's uh, affected a lot of leaders' lives in a way that uh, will therefore affect the lives and experiences of many of their employees, customers, and communities too. Wonderful recommendations. Mm. I'm particularly a fan of your suggestion yeah. of reading fiction um, with narratives and storylines and characters that are different from you. Um, that's a that's a wonderful suggestion. Anyway, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been uh, really quite a great pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure joining you. It's been a